So we are finishing up this morning our series in the book of Exodus. We have not obviously completed the book of Exodus. We were only ever sort of working through the first 15 chapters. Now we may come back to the rest of it at some point later in the future. But our series, uh, if you've been with us, is called Call and Response. And each week we've seen in the text here in Exodus the idea that God calls and people respond in different ways. Sometimes they respond with rebellion. Sometimes they respond with worship. And there are also places in the text where God's people have called out to him or even God's enemies have called him out and he is faithful to respond every time that there's a call there as well. It's so cool now that we get to Exodus 15 and we see the people responding in a spectacular way. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that uh, as we approached Exodus 14, we saw the people of God trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. And we talked about those times in our lives where we feel utterly and completely at a loss for how to proceed, and that in those moments, if we're in the position we're in, because of our faithfulness and obedience to God, that he will fight the battles for us, that if we're in his battle, it's his to fight. And we saw that God did exactly that for the people of Israel in the text last week, Exodus 14. That God piled up the waters on either side and that the people of Israel were enabled then to walk across on dry land. When Pharaoh's army followed in order to try and take captive the people of Israel, God then folded those waters back over his enemies and the army of Pharaoh was utterly and completely destroyed. And as the people now, God's people, stand on the far shore and look back at the devastation that God has just wreaked, they look back and there is a song of praise, a song of worship that just kind of explodes out of them. It's actually really cool to behold. I don't know if you consider yourself to be like a a musical person, if you're the kind of person that whistles all the time or sings all the time, you always get a song in your head or not. But what I love here in the text is that people respond, God's people respond to what he's done with this sort of spontaneous song. My uh, my daughter, when she was little, my daughter Lily, when she was about three, she always was singing. Like, you couldn't stop her. She's singing songs she knew. She's singing songs that she made up. It was like constant. In fact, she learned how to sing the song, God Bless America. You know that song? And every time we saw an American flag, she would burst into song and sing God Bless America. So you could be driving down the street and you'd drive past a car dealership and they'd have one of those big flags and she'd be like, God Bless America. You know, we're like, oh, great, here we go. And then the deal too is that if she saw another flag, before she finished the song, she would reset. So you drive a couple more blocks and there's another car dealer. God Bless America. You'd be like, Walking in the mall and see a flag on somebody's backpack. or God bless. You know, people would kind of congregate around and be like, is this like, a, is this like a scheduled entertainment at the mall today? Or like, what's going on exactly? But she would sing that song all day. We got to the place where we, I mean, I know it's unpatriotic, but we kind of hated that song, you know, because she'd always sing it. My wife and I were talking about it yesterday, and she said not only that, but because she was just so musical, there was a time where uh, my wife had taken my daughter to the hairdresser with her, and they were in the hairdresser. My wife was getting her hair done. And all of a sudden, uh, my daughter burst into song. Not, not patriotic song, but she burst into a song about Jesus that she just made up on the spot. And everybody kind of stopped to listen. She's like, Jesus is so great. And he is kind. And he loves us very much. You know, and like everybody in the whole like beauty salon kind of stopped to listen. Like, how sweet. Like this little girl just singing a spontaneous song to Jesus. But then it... It kind of took a dark turn where she's like, and if you don't believe in him, you'll go to hell. And my wife's like, oh, what are we going to, like, are we going to, does anybody have an American flag? You know, like, you've got to figure out how to change the tune, you know? 
But she just was always singing. And in fact, she's very musical to this day. I love the fact that in Exodus 15, we don't, there's not a recipe here for worship, right? This isn't a, it's not a text that we would look at and say, well, this is a prescription for how worship must look. But what we do see is a great example of God's people responding to who he is. And the first thing I want you to see as we look at Exodus 15, as we look at the call that God has made and then the people's response to him, the first thing I love about this story and about this response is that it is spontaneous, that it's fresh, that it feels like it just sort of comes out of their guts. You know, they've just had this kind of incredible ordeal where they were almost killed, they were in a panic, they were frightened, God leads them across through a miracle, and now in response to that, you'd almost think that they would want to just kind of take a breath. You know, they might want to just find a place to set up camp and sleep for a couple of days and get a, get, get a breath there. But instead, they take the time to stop and sing this song. It says in Exodus chapter 15, verse one, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. We know that this song, by the way, is one of the oldest things we have, if not the oldest thing we have recorded in the book of Exodus because Moses wrote this song at the time that it was delivered. He wrote it as soon as they crossed the Red Sea, but of course he doesn't write the book of Exodus until much later in his life. So in writing the story of Exodus later, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he includes the text and the words of a song that he'd written much earlier. So it's an an earlier piece that he includes here for, for our instruction and for our understanding. But I love the fact that it's spontaneous. You know, I think so often when we think about worship, number one, we tend to be too narrow, right? So already, there's kind of a, an idea, a lot of people feel like when they think about worship or they talk about it, they're thinking about music. We, we all know, right, that worship is much bigger than just a musical expression. In this case, it is a musical expression, but worship is every thought and word and deed and attitude. It all has redemptive potential. We have the ability to worship God in every moment of every day. It has to do with the intentionality of our heart. But it's interesting to me that when it comes to worship, and maybe even specifically musical worship, so often we just kind of get into a routine, right? We get into a pattern, we sing the same songs, we do the same things. We can sometimes even feel a a sort of an affinity for old songs that somebody wrote a long time ago. And it's not that those songs are bad. In fact, some of those songs are spectacular. The theology in them is amazing. But it's interesting to me how often we become dependent on words that somebody else wrote. In different experiences, we become dependent upon somebody else's experience of God as a way to declare our own. Now, that can work, but I like the fact that this thing just sort of comes out of the guts of the people in the moment. Psalm 98, Psalm 98 verse one, probably familiar to you, it says, oh sing to the Lord a new song. When's the last time you sang a new song? to the Lord. I don't mean like a new song that was unfamiliar to you and you just learned it, but when's the last time that a new, spontaneous, fresh song came out of your guts to God? He says, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation and has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. I love this call to sing something fresh, to sing something spontaneous, to sing something new. And it doesn't matter if you're musical. It doesn't matter if you play an instrument. It doesn't matter what your voice sounds like. You know, we don't, we don't actually know what Moses' voice sounds like, right? Maybe he's got a terrible voice. It doesn't seem like it's relevant to their celebration. I don't hear anybody in the text going, hey, Moses, this singing idea is, is a good one. Don't get us wrong. We like the heart behind it, but bro, 
not you. Somebody else needs to sing. You can write the lyrics, but somebody else needs to sing it, right? No, why? Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he sings well. It doesn't matter if he plays an instrument. It's not about his talent. It's not about his display. It's about who God is. And I like the fact that it's fresh. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 23, David says, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Well, that's interesting, too, because I think for, for a lot of us, our worship of God sort of gets relegated to this hour on Sunday mornings. You know what I mean? If somebody were to say to you, hey, are you, are you a God worshiper? Do you worship God? Do you worship Jesus? We'd go, yeah, I do. At 11.30 on Sundays every week, I drive over there, I park in the thing, I walk in, there's a guy that gets up and he plays a guitar, and I worship God for 35 minutes, right? And it's kind of like, can you imagine for a second if, um, if everything I ever said that was romantic or beautiful or affectionate to my wife, I read off of a Hallmark card? Can you, can you imagine that for a second? Like if I saw my wife one morning and she looked beautiful and I was like, oh, wait right there, hold on a second. And I run upstairs and I go into my dresser and I go to the bottom drawer and I pull it out and I got a whole stack of Hallmark cards there and I pull one out and I run back downstairs and I go, oh, I'm so glad you're still here. Shannon, I wanted to say something to you. Um, you are like the sun in the sky. You give warmth to my life and you are beautiful and I'm so thankful for the ways in which you have enriched us. You know, like can you imagine if in trying to articulate my affection to my wife that I was just reading something off a card? Or, or think of it another way. Imagine that my wife and I are married for you know, 60 or 70 years and I die and she's cleaning out all my stuff, getting ready for her new husband to move in and she's, uh, she's, she's going through my dresser and she finds a stack of Hallmark cards and as she starts to flip through them, she realizes that in the 60 years of our marriage, every affectionate, every beautiful, every kind, every generous thing I'd ever said I had just memorized off of a Hallmark card. Can you imagine how crushing that would be to her? To find out that all these things that felt like they were my words, that felt like they were coming from my heart, were actually coming from someone else's experience? I think it's a shame. It's not wrong, by the way. It's not wrong to sing somebody else's words to God. There's great beauty in that. But it would be an absolute shame for us to never sing a new song out of our own guts. To never respond in the moment in a spontaneous reflection upon who God is, it would be absolutely, absolutely crushing to never just overflow out of our own lives to God because of who he is and what he's done. I like the fact that their song is spontaneous. Not only do I like the fact that it's spontaneous, I like the fact that it's a response, right? I like the fact that they are purposefully responding to who God is and what he's done. We see that all throughout the Bible. Actually, from the very beginning of creation all the way to the end of the story that God is telling in the lives of human beings, we see his people and his creation respond to who he is. We see worship as a response, and that's important. It might feel trivial, but it's not. Even from the very beginning, in Job chapter 38, Job 38 verse four, God talking about the foundations of the earth. Here's what he says. In Job 38, 4, where were you, God says, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were, it, what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, God says in the book of Job that when he laid the foundations of the earth, the response from the stars was worship. 
that the response from creation itself was worship to what he's done. We see it all throughout the Bible. We see songs on the lips of God's people. We see it in Judges. We see it on the lips of King David, right? Psalm 40, verse 1, talking about the difficulty that God brought him through. In Psalm 40, verse 1, David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. When Isaiah talks about the the people who were in exile, the people of Israel who were in exile, returning to Jerusalem, when Isaiah prophesies about their return to Jerusalem, he says they will return with a song of praise on their lips. We even see at the birth of Jesus worship in response to who he is, don't we? We see the angels, right? Now, I'm not sure that the angels were actually singing. Some people say it was a choir of angels singing. If you actually look at the text, it says it's an army of angels shouting, which is a lot scarier if you think about it. Makes a lot more sense why the shepherds were a little freaked out. If you see a beautiful angel choir singing beautifully, you kind of go, oh, but if you see an angel army shouting, you kind of go, we gotta get out of here, right? The angels sing. The angels shout in response to who God is. Mary, the Virgin Mary, says, my soul will magnify the Lord, right? She sings in response to who God is and what he's done. We see that there's absolutely a call for those of us who are followers of Christ, those of us who are disciples, to declare the praises of God. It says in Colossians chapter three, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That in our lives and in our pursuit of discipleship, in the process of being sanctified, singing in response to who God is, is a part of who we're called to be. And even at the end, in Revelation chapter five, so from beginning to end, we see God's people respond to him in praise. Revelation chapter five, verse eight says, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Response, response, response. Not only is it spontaneous, but it's response to who God is. And why is that significant? Because I I would suggest to you that for many of us, what we think of as worship in, in the modern world, in the modern church, what we think about as worship typically is not so much a response to who God is and what he's done as much as it is an experience in and of itself. I think a lot of times people come to church because they want to feel a certain thing, because they want to get those goosebumps on their arm or they want to feel sort of overwhelmed. And they start to think of the worship of God as a thing, as, as like a, a service to be provided by the church, as something to consume and to absorb. But listen, worship is not just something to take. It, it's not just an entertainment or something to enjoy. It's a response to who God is. There is a temptation for us sometimes to, to feel like worship is an experience in and of itself rather than something that comes out of an experience, right? Right? Our worship comes out of an experience rather than being an experience that stands on its own. Our experience of God, our experience of who he is. I love that it's spontaneous. I love that it's a response. And thirdly, I want you to see this morning, I love that it's corporate. 
I love that it's corporate, that it's this body of people. You know, there's over a million people singing this song of Moses on the shores. They look back over the Red Sea, right? Corporate, they're together. Now look, we don't just worship corporately. Can you worship in your car? You absolutely can. Can you worship in your room with nobody else around? You absolutely can. Can you worship while you're hiking in the mountains or walking on a trail? Absolutely. That is one of the ways that we worship God because we're called to worship him in every thought and word and deed and attitude. But there is something unique and beautiful about being able to stand shoulder to shoulder with others who are followers of God, who've been moved by him, who've been overwhelmed by him. There's something unique and special about being able to stand shoulder to shoulder and praise God together. It says in Exodus chapter 15, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Moses and the people. At the end of the song, it even shows that Miriam gathers up a group of the women and they grab tambourines and they reprise the song. And they sing it again. We see the song continue in, in various shapes and forms, this song of Moses pops up in all kinds of places in the Bible. Even in Revelation chapter 15, it says that at the end of times, they will be singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Theologians disagree about whether they're talking about the song of Moses in Exodus 15 or the song of Moses in Exodus 32. But either way, Moses has written a hit. You know what I mean? It's hard to get a song to last a couple of months. But to get it to last from here all the way until the end of time, I mean... This guy's probably making some sweet royalties on this tune, right? It's not just spontaneous. It's not just a response, but it's corporate. It's a, it's a thing that happens together. I think a lot of times, again, so much of the way we approach worship and praise is an individualistic thing. We want to feel a certain way. We want things to sort of satisfy a particular need. And we approach it with an individualistic sort of experiential mindset. But God calls us together in worship you know, you've probably heard me say, if you've been uh, around for you know, any length of time, you've probably heard me say this thing where I, I say to people like, if I want to worship in a room full of 43-year-old bald, chubby guys, right, then I don't have to change at all, right? I just, I come to that room with my preferences and my tastes. I come to the kind of musical styles I like. And I, and I can just be in that room and be exactly chasing after what I want. And I can get other 43-year-old bald, chubby white guys in that room to worship with me. But if I want to worship shoulder to shoulder with my 17-year-old son, and at the same time worship shoulder to shoulder with my 90-year-old grandmother, and at the same time worship with my neighbor from across the street who only speaks Spanish, and at the same time worship with my neighbor the other direction who immigrated from Korea, if I want to worship with all these people, then I have to make a sacrifice. I have to start giving things away, right? A church united by sacrifice has the opportunity to sing and worship and praise God corporately. You suppose that everybody in this crowd liked Moses' song? You suppose that everybody in the crowd thought, you know what, this is the best song we've ever heard? Or do you think, just knowing what you do of human nature, that there were probably people in the crowd who went, I could have written a better song, right? Don't you think there were probably people in the crowd who were like, ah, we prefer the songs from Egypt? Or Moses, we've got a different idea for how this song can be sung. Your melody line's okay, but we've got some ideas for how it can be improved. Don't you suppose knowing what you do about human nature, that there were probably some people who went, I don't feel like singing. I don't really like this song. I don't really like this timing. It doesn't really suit my needs. We just walked across this riverbed, this, you know, the Red Sea thing. I'm tired. I just want to sit down. Anybody who doesn't want to sing Moses' stupid song, I'm going to be sitting over here by a fire and cooking some, uh, some falafel or whatever. I'm going to be cooking some falafel over here, and if you want to have some, then come over here with me, right? 
Don't you suppose that there were some of these little segments who sort of broke off and did their own thing? Well, there's only two options, you know. I mean, it's possible that every person in the nation of Israel who was delivered by God is singing this song. If that's the case, that's awesome. A group of people as diverse and as broad as this, with over a million in number, all singing the same song to the glory and praise of God? If that's the case, if they're all united in it, unbelievable. If they're not, and if there are a few people who've been divisive and who've said, I don't really like this song, or I don't really feel like singing, or I like the songs from where I used to come from, or I wish there was something else. If there are people like that who've broken off into their little groups, guess what? The Bible doesn't feel or see fit to record them for us. You know what that tells me? It means if those people exist, they aren't the point of the story, and they're not worth recognizing. What God is trying to do in this case is to elevate and to lift up those who were united in singing praises to God corporately. And that is part of what we've been called to. There's something beautiful about singing shoulder to shoulder with the breadth of expression that happens in a broad congregation, in a, a diverse congregation of people. There's something beautiful about that. It's like what it says in Ephesians where it says that uh, when Jesus is at home in us, when we're rooted and established in his love, we'll have power together with all the saints to increasingly grasp the height and depth and width and length of the unknowable love of God. You know how that increasing apprehension happens? It happens in our togetherness, in our shared experience, and by being united in sacrifice. You see, at any given moment in a, in a room like this, for us all to be in this room worshiping together, at any given moment there are gonna be some people who go, oh, the music's too loud or it's too soft, the music's too fast or it's too slow, these songs are too old or they're too new or they're too this or they're too that or the pastor wears tennis shoes and I don't like that or why is he so bald or whatever, right? In order for us to be in a room with our 17-year-old sons and our 90-year-old grandmothers and our Spanish-speaking neighbor and our Korean immigrant neighbor the other direction, in order for us to worship like this, we have to be united in sacrifice, not united in our preferences. Not united in our tastes, but united in, in, in our sacrifice. That that's what we all have in common. I love the fact that they're together. First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two, verse nine says this, talking about us. It says, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? Wow, think about who we are, who God's chosen us to be. A holy people, right? A chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, right? You kind of want to look around at other people and high five a little bit and go, yeah, we're chosen, we're holy. We've been set apart by God, how cool. Like we should get name tags that say that on there, right? But 1 Peter chapter 2, verse nine doesn't just tell us that we are those things for the sake of informing us. It tells us that we are those things for a purpose. Look at the verse. 1 Peter 2.9 says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's that mean? It means that you are all those things, and that is awesome, but you are those things for a reason. You are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people set apart, that you will, et cetera, et cetera, in order that you will declare the glory of he who pulled you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. It's not enough to simply go, yeah, we're holy and chosen, right? Good for us. This is a great club we got going on here. No, he, he appoints us to all of those things. He calls us all of those things for a reason, that in that position, we would declare together the praises of him who told, pulled us out of the darkness and put us into the light. 
there's something really beautiful that happens in corporate worship, and we don't want to miss that. We don't want to be divided. We don't want to be separated. We don't want to be off in our little circles. It was funny, when I worked at Hume Lake, um, there was, I, I was, uh, Hume Lake's a Christian camp in the mountains, and I was there as a, one of the program guys, and there was this interesting thing that would happen, like, we'd be in a chapel, there's like a thousand high school kids in the room, and the band would start to play, right, to lead us in musical worship, and when the band would start to play, the lights would go down, right, and it would just get, like, super dark, where, like, you couldn't see anybody, and if you tried to walk around, you'd, like, bump into stuff, and so one time I went up to the sound booth, and I said, uh, hey, it seems like every time we start to worship God together, it gets super dark in the room, and he goes, yeah, the sound guy goes, yeah, we do that, because people like to worship better in the dark. And I go, oh, that's interesting because the Bible says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, right? What are we talking about here? We'd rather be unexposed. And I said to the sound guy, I said, I I understand that it might be more comfortable to worship in the dark because nobody's looking at you, but it defeats one of the purposes of corporate worship, which is the ability to look left and right and see other people who are united with me in praising the glory of God because of who he is and what he's done. I don't wanna do that in the dark. I can worship in the dark. I can go into the closet at my house and shut off the lights and worship by myself in the dark and there's nothing wrong with that. But if I do that in here, if I do that in the chapel of Ponderosa at Hume Lake, I'm missing out on the joy of being able to see other people respond, spontaneous, corporate worship of God. I love the fact that they're all in that they're all in it together, and I get the fact that in order for them to all be in it together, they're all making some kind of sacrifice. Love that. And the fourth and final thing I want you to see in this text, and it's the most important, is that their worship, their response, their spontaneous, their corporate worship of God is God-centered. It's God-centered. Everything they sing is about who God is. They start by talking about God's victory in the past. They talk about God's power over the earthly realms. Then they move on to a, a, convert, a, a, like a declaration of God's power over the heavenly realms. And then they finish by talking about God's victory in the future. Let's look at it together. The first five verses of Exodus 15 says this. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. They're literally responding to the victory of God they have just seen and they're declaring it together. Then they move to a conversation of God's overarching power over earthly things. Look at what it says in verse six. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the flood stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. The second part of their praise, this God-centered praise, is a declaration of the fact that God's enemies can say, I will do this and I will do that and I will go here and I will consume this and I will destroy that. And it matters not because of God's power over earthly things. He's not only been victorious right here in front of our eyes, but he has power over all things on earth. Not only that, they'll say, 
He has power over things above the earth. It says in verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? That lowercase g includes both idols and false gods. They've just come from Egypt that had all kinds of false gods. Not only that, though, it includes angelic beings, heavenly beings. Who's like you among the heavenly beings and the false gods? Nobody. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You've led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. God has power over earthly things. He has power over the things in heaven. He's been victorious in the past. And because of all that, then as they declare his praise, this God-centered praise, they are able to declare together, he will also be victorious in the future. Look at verse 14. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. It's a God-centered song. It's not about them or their strength. It's not about what they feel or how they think. It's about God, his victory in the past, his power over the earth, his power over the heavens, and his power and victory still to come. The Moabites and the Edomites and the Canaanites and the Philistines are quaking in their shoes because they have heard about our God, and he is leading us into the place that he has prepared for us, into a abode where he will dwell with us. He will reign forever and ever. And listen, we here this morning, worshiping this very same God, are evidence of that reigning power. Because he not only delivers the people of Israel into the promised land, but by the work, the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has delivered us from sin and death. There is no enemy that can stand against him. Not sin, not death, not Satan, not demons. He is victorious. And he leads us into a kingdom which he's prepared, the kingdom of God. Jesus says in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of God is available. Not only does he lead us and give us the opportunity to live in the kingdom of God, but he makes his dwelling with us and in us. Ephesians 3 says that, he calls that we would have power from the Holy Spirit in our inner being that the Lord Jesus would dwell within us, that he would be settled down and at home in us. He doesn't just lead us into a beautiful country. He comes and makes his home within us. They declare the power of God. This worship the people put on display is spontaneous, it's a response, it's corporate, and it's God-centered. You know, I think sometimes we get focused on the wrong things other than God. We get focused on the wrong things. Do you remember the story of, um, of Belshazzar in the book of Daniel? That might not be familiar to you. Belshazzar was one of, the, one of the kings that had taken the Israelites into captivity. In fact, he'd taken Israelites, some of them, into captivity, and he'd also taken all of the holy items, the items of worship, the instruments of worship from the temple, and he'd taken them into captivity as well. And there's a story in Daniel chapter five where it says that Belshazzar is throwing this big party for he and all of his lords and his wives and all these people, and he has them go and bring all of the instruments of worship from storage to be used in the midst of his party. Daniel chapter five, Daniel chapter five verse three says, then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine 
and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And if you know the story, you know that as they're celebrating, they're using the instruments of worship, and all of a sudden there's this giant hand, disembodied hand that starts to write on the wall, and it says that, that Belshazzar goes as white as a sheet, and he starts to quake and tremble in fear because he doesn't know what's going on. All of his magicians and enchanters, none of them can provide insight as to what this hand has written on the wall, and Daniel, the prophet of the Lord, comes in. And in Daniel chapter 5, verse 23, Daniel says this to Belshazzar. He says, you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. He goes on to say, that same God has decided to take the kingdom away from you, Belshazzar, and to hand it to the Medes and the Persians. What is, what is it that Belshazzar did? He focused on the instruments of worship. He started to praise the gold and the silver and the wood and the stone and the bronze, the things that were meant to point us to God. He started to focus on those instruments and worship them instead of the God they were meant to point to. You know what I think is really prevalent in the world in which we live today? People who are focused on the instruments the tools of worship, who prioritize the things of worship as opposed to the one who is worthy of worship. Romans chapter one says the wrath of God has been revealed for all men because even though they knew God and were without excuse, they exchanged the glory of God for images, created things. They exchanged the worship of God which we were created for, for the worship of the creation. I think sometimes rather than our worship being God-centered, it becomes focused on the tools and the instruments of worship or it becomes focused on all kinds of earthly things, natural things, the created order. I'm not suggesting this morning that you're worshiping lizards or elephants or buffalo or whatever, but I do think that there are all kinds of things that become gods to us that were meant to just be things to point us to God. The Israelites get across the Red Sea and they have this beautiful, spontaneous, responsive, God-centered, corporate song together. And in it, they're able to declare and experience. It's not that there's no experience or enjoyment in it. It's enjoyable, it's experiential, but that isn't the point. Those things are byproducts. They approach it to declare the glory of who God is and what he's done. And it is a great testimony to us, these thousands of years later, of what worship should also be but I wonder as you look into your own life, as you think about what worship means to you, both musical worship and other kinds of worship, I wonder if maybe you feel like you've started to drift. If maybe you started to drift away from what's truly important. And if that's the case, I have good news for you. We're getting ready to go into a series in a couple of weeks in the book of Hebrews that we're gonna be in for a while. And the point of the book of Hebrews, one of the points of the book of Hebrews, is that when we center our attention on Jesus and we recognize that he's supreme, we find for ourselves an anchor to prevent us from spiritual drift. That's where we're headed in the next couple of weeks. But right now, I wonder if instead of spontaneous and responsive, I wonder if instead of God-centered and corporate, you find that your approach to worship tends to be routine. That you just sort of get into a pattern where you're just pulling those, uh, you're just pulling those Hallmark cards up out of the bottom drawer. Or maybe your worship of God has become purely experiential. It's become about what you can get and how you can feel, as opposed to responding to an experience, responding to who God is and what he's done, you're trying to make that worship something in and of itself. I wonder if for some of you, you would find that your worship of God has become individualistic about satisfying yourself or, or meeting your own needs instead of sacrificial that allows us to be corporate. And I wonder if there are some of you 
in the room who've started to, to be creation focused, focused maybe on the instruments of worship rather than one that they are intended to point to, creation focused rather than creator focused. And as we look at this story, there's so much to be inspired by, but there's, there's also some things for us to kind of take on the chin and evaluate in our own lives whether or not our worship has drifted. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would both um, help us to sense the joy and the glory, just the, the absolute thrill of a congregation of your people worshiping you in song, spontaneous. Help us to be hungry for that. Give us a sense of desire to do whatever we have to do to be people that are so God-centered that there are new songs coming forth from our lives. And I pray that you'd move in us and you, and you would give us a clearer view of you, that we would have the same, the same thinking of older Christians who used to say, as we worship, so we believe and so we live. God, would you allow our beliefs to dictate our worship and not the other way around? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.